Hello, I'm Matt Carpenter, and this is the Good Life Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. I'm Matt Carpenter, and I am glad today to be joined by John Errett. John is a writer. He is an attorney in Washington, D.C. He's written for several online and print journals, including the Claremont Review of Books, American Affairs, The American Reformer, and he's written a lot about a topic that is rising, especially in uh, those in, the tw- in their 20s and 30s among American Christian males and just American males in general. So, John, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. appreciate your having me. So you've written uh, a lot about the West and the loss of Christendom, of Christian culture, and the attempts to pull it back uh, to revive it, however, you know, whatever is the best way of, of saying that. So let's just start, because we're going to we'll use some of these terms a good bit. What or how do you define the West, or how do you define Christendom when we talk about that? That's a great question. I think I would define Christendom as the the complex of societies that have really had a post-Constantinian imprint on them. And I, I would not say this is a negative thing necessarily. There are some people, I think Stanley Hauerwas among them, who would say that that was Christianity's original sin in some sense. But if we just look at it from a historical standpoint, uh, we, we see much of North America, much of Europe, um, even some other civilizations in the world, such as parts of North Africa, Latin America, South America. All of these have the mark of Christian civilization and specifically a relationship in which uh, Christianity, uh, once it took over the Roman Empire under Constantine and his successors, really played an instrumental role in transforming those societies' approach to not just religion, but also their governance, their art, their sense of themselves, and their sense of history as, as a whole. And uh, when we talk about the West, I think that's what most people are referring to, even though now that term is a lot more contested and uh, people debate exactly what that means, especially as we understand the West relative to societies that don't have that Constantinian or Christendomic heritage. I know Russell Kirk in his book, The Roots of American Order, gave a picture of the West that includes uh, the beginning with the Hebrews, the Greeks, the Romans, and the Christians together. And, and, and now some people, and we'll talk more about this later on, some people emphasize one of those uh, over others, but, but probably in Christian circles at least. Uh, it, we, we, of course, emphasize Christianity. And then, you know, growing up, a lot of evangelicals, the only thing that many evangelicals heard uh, at least that I, speaking for myself, largely, we heard about the Judeo-Christian heritage uh, that was used in in the uh, like the, I, remember, I remember Pat Buchanan's presidential campaigns, and you know even going Ronald Reagan, George Bush the first, and uh, George you know George W. Bush as well. So you know that it is a loaded term, but now we see that a lot of those you know, the institutions, the society, the culture, there's a disillusion 
uh, as in a, a breakup or a breakdown of the West. So what are the responses or how have people responded in recent times to what looks like the, the crumbling of this great structure that, that is or was Christendom? I think people have been debating exactly what to do about that, uh, that crack up, so to speak, almost since uh, the Reformation period. And in the in the early modern period, you start getting uh, a reorganization of political institutions around the idea of the nation state and around the possibility that relations between nation states could be mediated according to principles of natural reason accessible to them all. Uh, and so that would in effect mean that even entities not subject to the, the universal jurisdiction of the Catholic Church could relate to each other in a nonviolent way. And I think that's where you begin to see the emergence of what a lot of people both positively or negatively refer to as liberalism or the idea that there can be neutral standards of rationality and justice to which both parties can appeal in a way that mitigates intraconfessional and interconfessional violence. Uh, and as that progresses, and as the, the liberal project advances, you see a lot of optimism about human reason running down through the Enlightenment. And then uh, that ultimately culminates in the, the big totalitarianisms of the 20th century. So on the right, you have Nazism. On the left, you have communism. And as a result, you have a lot of skepticism about the ability of uh, human reason to lead to these uh, positive, positive results and to lead to a universal world order characterized by peace and not violence. And what's interesting is that uh, people, when people talk about the Frankfurt School, it's oftentimes raised as a kind of conspiracy theory. But this was the original question the Frankfurt School was trying to deal with is how did our project of human rationality bring us to communism on the left and Nazism and fascism on the right? And what does that mean about the, the, the world in which we live today? And so after that kind of post-war period, you see increasing attention to uh, the possibility of a kind of liberalism that brackets out metaphysical and nationalistic questions altogether. Um, people will refer to this as the, the post-war consensus. And Rusty Reno gives a, a good analysis of this issue in his book, Return of the Strong Gods. But uh, and more recently, I think, especially with the, the events of 2016 and afterwards, you're starting to see cracks in that foundation and the possibility that you really can't uh, appeal to these universal standards in a way that satisfies people's uh, pre-political yearnings in some sense, or their, their desire to be characterized by realities and groupings that aren't just, here I am part of a, a global economic order where I'm defined by my contribution to the national GDP. You see pre-modern identity configurations such as religion, such as culture, those become increasingly important in this period. And I think that that's plunged a lot of Christians across the West, as we've, we've talked about it kind of the broad sense, into a, into a time of reckoning as we figure out what does it look like if we, if we increasingly can see that the political configuration that treats us all as economic units and that focuses on ever, ever lower, lowest low common denominators of public morality, how, how far can you, can you push this and still have a cohesive civilization capable of engaging in moral reasoning projects together? So you've got that from the Christian perspective and the kind of broadly conservative or right perspective. And on the left, you see increasing awareness that supposedly liberal sets of uh, norms and values do, in fact, embed power relations of their own. They, they exclude some perspectives and elevate others. And I think that intuition is where you get a lot of uh, wokeness, what was, people would call wokeness or uh, the social justice left. It's this kind of criticism of the liberal consensus that we basically have agreed to since 
both the the post-war period, but running before that to the attempts to tamp down confessional violence uh, in the Middle Ages. There is, it's hard for people today to, uh, who, who are weary of all of the, the, the degradation of public morals, of, uh, of, every, of the things that they loved and remembered as a child, uh, certainly in the United States, but I'm sure even more in Europe, the Europeans have longer memories than we do, certainly. And when, when you have beautiful things, whether physical or metaphysical in your culture, and you see them cracking and, and people point the blame to liberalism, we think, well, of course, we just gave way too much freedom. But it's hard for us to imagine 500 years ago that there was wars going on, not just over, I mean, yes, Protestant and Catholic, but there were wars going on over which version of Protestantism you were. So if you were Anglican or if you were Puritan, well, that's a cause for a fight because somebody's going to control the, 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 the pocketbook. So, I mean, that, that's, and, and somebody's going to control the, the national churches. So, so we don't, because we have no concept of that. We don't, it doesn't make sense to us that, that liberalism was actually an appealing idea because we're just going to set aside every, you know, all these areas where we disagree and we're just, we're going to agree to disagree. But as you said, now we, we put so many things in this bin of where we agree to disagree that it's actually, it suppresses, it has suppressed our ability to, to, to speak about much of anything except whatever the popular bromides are of the day. Right. And I think as we see uh, the fact we've learned in the last uh 50 to 100 years, just how radically people can offer different interpretations of the baseline facts of reality. But as, as you mentioned, we, the idea that we can have universal standards that we can all appeal to, that comes out of a milieu in which cities and towns and entire countries are just completely devastated. Thousands of people killed over what we would now consider differences that could be hashed out within a, a pan-Protestant uh, political project. We don't see this as driving violence on the scale that people once did. I think it's very easy to look back and be like, wow, those, those people unleashed this monster of liberalism that's undone our entire country. But we're also not the people who are bleeding and broken at the end of seeing our countries and our families killed in these horrific conflicts. And I think if, if we could transplant ourselves back into that milieu, we would have very different uh, conclusions than I think the ones that I think a lot of people are willing to, to voice on Twitter. But And paradoxically, the idea that we can have universal standards to which all people can reasonably appeal, that's a natural law argument. And that comes out of the ideas of Christianity and Judaism before that, the idea that there's one God who's imposed rational order upon the world in a way that people can find out. And so that, that intuition that drives early liberalism is a very Christian intuition. And where it becomes more difficult is the idea that you can approach that apart from a explicitly religious understanding of authority and tradition in, a, in determining how to interpret the objective data of reality. We, we cut ourselves off from the ability to acknowledge that our interpretations are always conditioned by our, our experiences and the institutions that form us. I think that's one of the biggest drivers of both the the, the postmodern uh, phenomenon of and the, the critique of supposed universally accessible standards of rationality, 
but it's also driving the Christian post-liberal critique that that uh, this project has failed because it has failed to acknowledge that it requires it, both a religious grounding on the, the objective metaphysical level, but also at the epistemo epistemological level, how we know what is ultimately real. We do that through our institutions, such as our, our churches and, the, and through the Bible. Right. So the, there are many responses Christians have offered to in, in recent times to the to the breakup of the West to, to, to the falling away of standards on you know on the Roman Catholic side you have those who are called uh, integralists uh, and then those that you know many of our listeners will be more familiar with on the reform side is uh, theonomists. So what is the correlation? between those two views. I mean, on one hand, it's two vastly different wings of Christianity, but many of their goals seem similar. That's a great question. I think the the, the core intuition that drives both of those is the, the, the fact that universal, that there is no perspective that is presuppositionless and that no matter how, what, what liberal arguments you can make for the alienation of you, you as a, a subject from your, your conditions and your, your, the circumstances of your environment, you always bear with you the marks of your, your upbringing, your culture, your conditioning, what you've been trained to see. You simply can never reach a, a view from nowhere. And that Immanuel Kant spent many, many hundreds of pages trying to establish just that. And I would say that once you get into the 20th century, uh, thinkers like Martin Heidegger really blow that up and say that, you know, your entire way in which you approach the world before you even reflect on it consciously has already been shaped by the, the circumstances in which you, you're born and in which you spend your life. And that's the intuition that I think is sound within both the, theono the uh, theonomic and uh, integralist perspectives is that the way in which you approach the real is always going to be shaped by the kinds of institutions and the the conditions in which you find yourself. So if, you're, if your perception of reality is shaped by biblical language from the start, you're going to interpret reality very differently than if you're given, first of all, the con concepts and the vocabulary of uh, the secular child rearing uh, academy as it is today. And I think so. I think that to the extent that both uh, integralist and theonomic positions want to argue for that on an epistemological level, that's sound. Where I think they they start to take a different turn is that they they start to call into question the possibility of communication across these paradigms at all. And so the idea that there is a rationally ordered world, even if we do approach it through our interpretive traditions that, that God created and that people of different backgrounds can, in fact, appreciate and meaningfully reason together about. And you start to see this, this kind of epistemological skepticism, especially in Van Til, but you also get it from uh, certain integralist writers, and D.C. Schindler has argued for this, that basically apart from a particular interpretive schema, you, you can, in fact, have no meaningful communication with anybody else. You cannot, in fact, talk about the idea that the world, in fact, reflects the, the creative imprint of uh, the one God uh, before all worlds. And, and you really don't have that kind of idea of natural law that emerges. So natural law kind of drops out of the picture at the same time that you're affirming the fact that all uh, human reasoning does in fact rely on an interpretive foundation. So there's a fruitful tension there that I think exists between acknowledging that, you know, there is a world outside ourselves that God created that we can rationally discuss with other people, including people from outside our own traditions, outside the Christian tradition even, 
but simultaneously acknowledging that God in his word has given us an interpretive schema for that, that it, that really does transform how we approach that reality that's generally accessible to people. The first thing that, that clued me into the, the similarities of the two projects was when I read in a book, it was a, the history of triumph magazine, you know, the, the kind of the original Roman Catholic integralist magazine published by Brent Bozell back in the 1970s was that they, they had RJ Rushdoony write for them. At- oh, I didn't know that. That's fascinating. Yes. So wow. uh, now he was not a, a regular writer, but he did write for them. So just the fact that, first of all, he would consent to do so, this arch-reformed thinker. I mean, it, it just it demonstrates that there are some similarities in the project that they're working towards. Now, of course, if one or the other had 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 actually had their way, um, be looking at a different different few steps in history, but it was still like a second, 30, year, 30 years war between them. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps. But so you have the Christian responses, but then there are other responses that are less Christian, uh, leaning more in a pagan direction. Now, you know, you, you have several articles and, and, and I will post in, in our notes, all of the, the I'll, I'll post your, the articles that we refer to that you've written because they will give them a lot more space to what you have to say that, that I think would be helpful for people who are, who are interested in, in diving further. But one element that, that's common in the, the non-Christian response to the breakup of the West is that of mythology, uh, ancient mythology, whether Norse, uh, some Greek, and, and you even referred to some, some of the movies that have come out that, that demonstrate this, like uh, the Northman or Beowulf, uh, you know, a, a few years back. So, so, so to just talk about the, the revival of old mythology and, and how it plays into the response of some to uh, our problems today. Yeah. So, so the the genealogy of, of liberalism that we we previously talked about, where. Uh, you know, you have this, idea, this argument from a lot of people that once we introduce principles of freedom and universal standards of rationality to which everybody can appeal, that that sets the West on a downward trajectory. That is a fundamentally Christian argument, basically. That's a, that's a Catholic adjacent type argument. The much older type of argument, you, you got this from some paleoconservatives throughout all of American history, but throughout a lot of countries that really are not part of the West at all. The argument runs that Christianity is itself the problem and that the idea that Christianity introduces into world history the idea of a universal God above the gods of all the nations to whom all have to ultimately pay allegiance and uh, a, a relative to whom all human beings stand in essential metaphysical equality. That's something that the the defenders of, I think, what you could call a, a neo-pagan revival or an atavist revival, that's something that they see as a fundamental problem because human history, as we see in all these different mythologies around the world, 
human history before Christianity reflects a principle of hierarchy between individuals, reflects the idea that there are some people who are just naturally created superior to others and as such have the right to rule. And the, the canonical statement of this would be in uh, ancient Indian civilization, the, the Indian subcontinent, the laws of Manu, which have uh, four different castes. We have the, the Brahmins, the Kshatriyas, the Vaishyas, and the Sudras, reflecting different social groupings in society. So you have the priests, you have the warriors, you have the merchants and shopkeepers, and uh, the middle class, and you have the laborers. Whatever caste grouping that you're born into on the laws of Manu, that affects your destiny. And you can move up or down as you're reincarnated through different cycles of human existence. But that basically sets out the contours of uh, your place in society. There is no essential metaphysical equality between human beings. Human beings as such are inherently unequal, and society has to reflect that fact. I think you can make a pretty compelling argument that that's the natural condition of pre-Christian human civilizations. And you see this in Norse culture. You see this in Greco-Roman culture. If you read the Iliad and the Odyssey, you see these kinds of hierarchical groupings start to emerge. You see women and men treated very differently on the basis of their, their metaphysical roles and their metaphysical identities over and beyond any sort of common ground that might exist between them. And so across the world, you see a pattern of intrinsic hierarchies that can be divided by gender, that can be divided by social position, that can be divided by biological uh, race in some form, shape, or kind. And I think as people look at uh, the, the current landscape of political discourse, which really wants to obviate differences between men and women, which really wants to take very aggressive views of uh, egalitarianism in many ways, there's an appeal to these kinds of old, very hierarchical views of civilization. And the argument runs that once Christianity came in and started talking about human quality before God, that in effect made us think a, a lie, made us think something that's not fundamentally correct about how human beings are. Nietzsche was making this critique back at the, in the 1800s. And so in, in other words, for people who take this position, what we need to do is to go, to go back behind Christianity altogether, to get the entire Christian debris of liberalism and Christianity and all of this just completely out of the way and start talking about intrinsic human difference and intrinsic human hierarchy. And that that's the way that any sort of meaningful conservative or right-wing political project has to go. And I think that that's something that we're starting to see, not just from uh, the fringes, but we're starting to see it make its way into more popular spaces, or at least uh, in, I, I think you can make an argument. This is a, it's coming in in a baptized form as well. They're both baptized and unbaptized versions of this. So, so you answered then why this is a draw for many. And that brings us to another term that you've written about that I honestly, I'd heard it. I did not know what it meant until you defined it in your article. That is uh, vitalism. So just define or, des or describe vitalism for, for us because we'll use the term uh, over the, the the rest of this this discussion, so and, you know, and is it is it exactly what you just described that return to hierarchy? Is it more? Um, so, so just tell us about that word. I think we could we could define this best by looking at what it's definitely not. And so, if you think about a Christian monk or a hermit or somebody in the desert who decides to devote their entire life to God and goes off and or sits on a pillar like uh, the Stylites. Uh, hermits in the, the desert monasticism tradition. Somebody who lives like that, who lives a, a world of renunci a life of renunciation and a life devoted to the transcendent, that is the opposite of the vitalist. The vitalist is everything that's not that. 
if uh, if Irenaeus said that the glory of God is a man fully alive, I think we can say that the, for the vitalist, to be fully alive is the glory of man. And so a human being who is physically strong or perfect, who's, uh, if they're a man who's virile, who begets children, who's uh, sexually prolific, who is physically powerful and capable of imposing his will upon a world that resists him at every turn. So the idea of vitalism is that th this is the best way to live in a world because there, there's really no eternity that would justify the possibility of self-denial. So don't deny yourself, but don't at the same time, don't become slack and uh, weak. Be strong and uh, channel your inherent will to power so that you can, you can burn with the flame of uh, Achilles or Ajax or any of the heroes that we read about in the Iliad. So those mythological heroes, Beowulf, everybody else, those are the archetypes that need to be driving you. You can be somebody who is as capable as them of shaping history and of carving your way into the, the world picture of human destiny. That I think is the, that's the appeal of vitalism. And I think it has a, a lot of persuasive power to a lot of young guys. The idea that you have this within you, if you just choose to unleash the, the Achilles or the Agamemnon within you, you can be all of this. So recently I was uh, in, in, involved in a discussion with, with someone, uh, a younger man, and he was talking about, he was contrasting. He said, you know, I, I, I really like a much more optimistic, strong, vibrant view of Christianity that says we're going to take ground. We're going to take, you know, what we're, what we're going to, to overcome because said, I, I was raised with a view of Jesus only being meek and only being you know j just not asserting himself and I, and and I can't stand that view so I, as I was listening though I thought I think and I know I've already I've emphasized definitions a lot but but but, but, but a lot of our definitions I think are really skewed because I mean and I'm, I'm not denying that the need to live with vigor but you, know, you think of somebody like John the Baptist, you know, who comes out of the wilderness eating locusts and honey, wearing, you know, animal skins, and he's, you know, repent ye brood of vipers because, you know, the kingdom of heaven's coming and he's going to burn you with it and, and, and so on. And, and then he calls Jesus the lamb of God who takes away the sin. You know, this, this wonderful... Not not a paradox, but a, but it is a contrast, though. I mean, he's Jesus is a lion of the tribe of Judah, <laughs> yes. But he when he's seen in Revelation, he's seen with with power and glory. But he's the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So I mean, so, so, so what? I'm trying to think of how to form this as a question, but what is the how does Christianity wear, how do the vitalists try to wed themselves to Christianity? What, what, what is the correlation and where does vitalism not overlap? Where, where, where does it push too far past the bounds of Christianity? That's, that's a lot in that question, I know, but. Boy, that's a that's a great question. Lots of people, I think, might might take different different perspectives than I would on this. But at least for me, the fundamental vitalist mistake is in recognizing that the strength of the martyrs is a very different kind of strength than the strength of Conan the Barbarian. 
and that being willing to to suffer incredible things and bear up under horrible conditions for the sake of an ideal that's very different than exerting your force in the world in a way that uh, ultimately redounds to your own glory and the so the the glory of the the christian is external it's pointed externally it's not oriented to, towards themselves and obviously we we have hagiographies of the saints and the martyrs we remember who they are but that's not the essential goal the essential goal is that the the glory that they they have is a reflected glory it reflects their creator it's not intrinsic to them in the way that i think the the glory of the vitalist is and the the the, I, the goal of the vitalist is to be somebody like alexander the great who carves their mark on history um, in the in the 2004 movie Troy, which a lot of people hated, but actually I quite enjoy, um, there's a Achilles is offered the choice of you can either go home uh, and have many sons and daughters and be beloved, but you'll be forgotten in a few generations, or you can go to Troy and you will die there, but everyone in the rest of history will remember your name. And I think the, the for the for the Christian, the your name is remembered in the Lamb's Book of Life in the end. Your your if your name is forgotten in the course of human history, that's an acceptable price to pay. And that there are many thousands of Christians who have lived sacrificial lives whose names are known but to God, and they're not carved in the pages of history in the way that the great conquerors of history might. And so, to the extent that those two things come in tension whether you're, you're trusting in a, ultimately a transcendence beyond yourself or you're, you're living your life through the prism of the, the imminent with an A. Um, I think that that's the tension point. That, that, that sounds very abstract, but I think what it, what it looks like in practice is that at least as, as far as we talk about political action, there are going to be lines for the Christian that simply can't be crossed, even if that means that you know, you'll be defeated or your way of life might, might take a hit. And I, those those lines are not the same as would exist for the vitalist who who wouldn't care about you know sacrificing however many people are necessary to achieve their own glory, but the Christian is called ethical standards and God's moral norms that are transcendent and that that acknowledgement of a moral order that uh, is not defined by the the individual's power but with the, under which the individual stands. That's what made uh, Judaism and Christianity so radical against the, the rest of the ancient world is that they rejected that, that they placed human glory subordinate to a transcendent order. And to the extent that that's lost, I think the project we were talking about ceases to be a Christian one. One of the the things that that you were just saying that, that's helpful for me is is thinking that this is this is not a contrast of either strength or no strength. Mm-hmm. It's strength expressed in different directions. It's, it, it, you know, you can have strength when you are facing trials that, as, as, as Peter says, when, when you are persecuted for your faith, do not, first of all, you know, I believe as Peter, he said, don't think it's strange considering this, but also, Receive it, knowing right. that knowing that this is. I mean, I, I, you know, Boniface. Everyone talks about the way that he cut down the, the the oak of Thor. No one talks about the way he died at the hand of pagan thugs when they could. He could have. I mean, his those who were with Boniface said, "Should should we fight?" And he said, "No," because they were coming after him because of their their faith. Now. I'm not saying that that's that, that, that we never resist that that's not the point here but it is just to say that strength is not only in raw power 
displayed by your con by, by your your conquest. So a lot one of the online debates in recent times has been: should there be no enemies to the right? Mm-hmm. Should you know? It, it, is it is it okay to have enemies? Like in other words, should you ever punch to the right? Mm-hmm. Because people, on, you know, we know we should punch to the left. That that's that's easy. I mean, that that's like you know, swatting flies in a barn. But on the other hand, you know, so, some say we shouldn't because we need every person we can get who will be a co-belligerent with us in defeating the junk. Mm-hmm. So that's a that, that, that's just one way that it seemed like these the, 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 these two manifest themselves differently from what you said. Right. And I, I would say that I, I utterly reject the, the no enemies to the right idea. And to, because to my mind, what that does is that that pre- presumes a baseline of left versus right that is more basic than the, the Christian commitment to to love and serve God and neighbor in the various configurations of history in which we might find ourselves. And I, I've done my fair share of reading about the no enemies to the right thing. And the basic idea is that the left is everything that promotes egalitarianism after the enlightenment. I'm probably paraphrasing, but that's basically the idea. And this, to my mind, misses the point that what Christianity brings in uniquely again in human history is the idea that yes, there are hierarchies in the world. There's a created order with under which we stand and human beings are subordinate to God's law, but there also is a radical equality that undoes traditional hierarchies that undoes the idea that, you know, you are part of a a city with its own local gods and a family with its own local gods. And you're, you have a caste position that puts you over the, the plebeians or the slaves or whomever else you might have within your civilization. And so there is a there are both hierarchical and egalitarian tendencies within the, the universal Christian message. The goal of the Christian cannot be for the right, defined as the principle of hierarchy, to defeat the left, defined as the principle of egalitarianism. That is disordered. The goal of the Christian is to promote God's created order and bring society into conformity with that if their vocation is a political vocation. And that at times means that Christians are going to be arguing for if they're if they're in the context of the Roman Empire, then they're going to be the forces of egalitarianism against the traditional hierarchies. If that's in contemporary America, that probably looks more like defending the law of God against the people that would say that that, that doesn't exist. But as a as a working principle, I think the for Christians, the, the line is not simply between left and right in this sense. It's a question of figuring out what God's uh, relationship to both equality and hierarchy looks like and working to bring society towards that ideal. And so I understand the people that want to uh, organize ag- aggressively and uh, form a political coalition. I mean, I, I my job is in politics as a day job. And so I understand the need to build political coalitions. But to make no enemies to the right a kind of operative moral principle that applies to how we do theology and public theology in the church, I think it's an incredibly risky path. In addition, there's also, I've observed a hunger for many to escape materialism. Mm-hmm. There, people, I mean, we know inherently there is more to life than just flesh and blood. And there's more than just the Bible that presents a non-material view of the world. Mm-hmm. So the term re-enchantment has become more prominent, you know, 
the seeds of which were laid down certainly by Charles Taylor and, you know, in the secular age. But then it's it's gained reenchantment has gained popularity with people like Rod Dreher and uh, you know and, and other thinkers as well. So again, it, it, it seems that both going back to the discussion of pagan mythology and then pagan mythology and Christianity both offer a an escape from materialism, mm-hmm. but they are two different paths to reenchantment. Not, not, not all. Re- I mean, it does. Not all reenchantment's a good thing. Absolutely, and I think uh, Stephen Smith has a wonderful book that he wrote on this called "Pagans and Christians in the City," and this came out a few years ago. And he's a he's a law professor who under thinks about how these theological questions implicate our, our current legal debates, and he draws a distinction between two different types of sacredness or enchantment. Uh, with Christianity and with uh, Judaism before that, and probably also with Islam, you have a, a concept of the sacred as ultimately other than the world, uh, as transcending the world, and that such that everything in the world is ordered in relation to its transcendent source. All the powers and forces and spirits that might exist in the world, in, in Taylor's enchanted world, ultimately are in God's world and subordinate to God's created order. But then on the other hand of things, you have an imminent sacred, again, with an A, and that would be the idea that the, the process of becoming itself, the entire natural or order in which we live and move and have our being uh, here below, that that is in fact charged with a kind of sacredness in and of itself. So it's looking at the same set of data that you'd see from a secular materialist, but it chooses to adopt a very uh, different posture towards that and say that this actually, this order in which I find myself, this natural order, this is itself divine. The process of becoming and the process, all the natural forces and uh, hierarchies and differences that we see around us, that is the sacred order to which I should conform and ordain my life. And this doesn't require uh, a conflict, any conflict between religion and science in the, the contemporary sense. It's basically just saying, I choose to interpret the data of reality in a way that treats it as fundamentally enchanted. And that's where you start seeing arguments about uh, divinity and hierarchy and some people being superior to others in a natural way, but you see that charged with religious language. And the important, uh, an important book that really changed how I thought about this is uh, Fustel de Coulomb's book, The Ancient City, which is a study of how Greeks and Romans thought about their own religion and thought about their gods. And this is very difficult for a lot of us who have come of age in like the era of Disney Hercules to, to grasp. But the, the basic point is that the, the Greeks and Romans, when they talked about Ares, the god of war, Aphrodite, the god of lo- goddess of love, they weren't thinking about spirits independent of the world who are coming and going within the world off to Mount Olympus, popping down for a, a visit, even though some of their poetry, like the Iliad, does, does talk in those terms. On a, on a metaphysical level, what they understood to be the role of the gods were what we typically call natural forces now. So if you see a thunderstorm rolling in, that's not sent by Zeus. That is Zeus coming to change the change the landscape. If you experience love, that's not Aphrodite sending love into your heart from some transcendent beyond. That is Aphrodite, and that is the arrows of Cupid working in you. And so this, this idea that the, the imminent or the experienced natural phenomenal world is in fact sacred. That's what enchantment looks like before Judaism and Christianity come in and say, no, all of this is the, the creative outpouring of 
a God who is beyond all this, who is beyond nature and uh, against whom all nature is ultimately relativized. So that's the kind of dark enchantment, I guess you could say, that the, the vitalist is tapping into. He's recognizing that there was a time which the in which these natural forces rage and anger, we didn't think of that as just being chemical reactions in the brain. We thought about it as being a man who is channeling the spirit of Ares, the god of war. And somebody who can make the argument that instead of talking about this in these secular materialistic terms, we should go back to this much older and deeper dark enchantment of the world. You point in one of your articles to St. Augustine as one who answers or who provides an answer to vitalism. So how does that good doctor of the church help us understand and, and, and answer the, the vitalist call today? So what, what Augustine really grasps well, and he, because he came out of this milieu, he understood it incredibly well. What he grasps is that the, the, the idea of the imminent divine or the, the pagan enchantment of the world, it can't provide within itself any internal criteria that determine what is good or bad in any meaningful sense. It can't be meaningfully a, a path to some form, shape, form of, of ethical order or way to live in the world because it says that anything that is, is in some fashion divine. And the world contains both beauty and horror. He's got a great quote that says, who, unless he is quite mad, could bear the thought that parts of God can become lascivious, iniquitous, impious, and altogether damnable. So if the divine is everything and everything is the divine, then how are you going to live in that world? What kind of ethical excellence can you, can you point to? If you really carry this logic through consistently, then the person who's living on their couch uh, in slovenly fashion, just playing video games and eating Doritos all day, that is an, as an aspect or expression of the divine that in a, a truly consistent vitalist cosmology, you have no grounds for saying that's, that's less divine than the man who is charged with the fire of pure being leading an army into war. Hmm. A few times you've quoted... You've referred to both the, the Jewish and the Christian tradition. But you also have an article uh, on how within the Christian tradition, there, there is a, uh, a subset of uh, Christian uh, you know, doctors in faith who, who express what, what many would call anti-Semitic thought. Now, again, that's another very loaded term, and, and it's, it's been weaponized by those on the left to refer to, you know, anything they don't like, essentially. So, so again, let's, let's start with the definition. What is anti-Semitism, and is it really present in the Christian tradition? So I think we can draw a distinction here, and I'm following some other scholars in doing this, between anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism. And that anti-Judaism would be the idea that, you know, Christians are opposed to, to Jewish people because they, they see them as uh, rejecting the Messiah and as causing problems in society that follow from that. And anti-Semitism would be where there's those long-standing patterns of anti-Judaism take on a biopolitical uh, dimension and re reflect the kind of ideas, the evolutionary ideas of race that come in starting in about the, the 16th and 1700s. And the people start to see the Jewish people as defined, not, not just differently as a matter of religion, but also as defined fundamentally different as a matter of biology. And I think it, it's fair to say that this, the anti-Semitism aspect of the biopolitics, 
there are there are Christians who have made that argument, and that, that's something that we see in uh, Hitler's Reich in particular. And the, but then we do see anti-Judaism in the tradition prior to that. As and I I would disagree that both the the anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic paths. I think both of those reflect a failure to understand in a really deep sense the relation of what the Jewish testimony is. Uh, relative to the Christian tradition. And so that that's one of the, argu- the articles that I, I've written recently. And the argument that I make there is that the the core common denominator between Jewish and Christian understandings of God is this recognition that God is other than the world, that human beings have a final end other than being excellent in the reality and the created order in which we find ourselves. And that a uh, Ultimately, human beings are subject to moral standards that aren't just products of society or convention, but reflect that absolute transcendent moral order. And that's the deep continuity between the Jewish and Christian understandings of God that sets off the entire Jewish Christian uh, Western tradition from everything that came before that. And I would say is, is starting to emerge after that fact. So there's a true uniqueness in the understanding of who God is that we see reflected there. And I think that in in the context of the Middle Ages and in the disputes that arose, this this ultimately dropped out of the picture for a lot of theologians who were dealing with the the issues of their day and didn't really have a larger comparative perspective against which to to see this this deeper continuity. So I think to the extent that Luther and Calvin said some of these anti-Jewish things, I think they were wrong in doing so. And I think it's fine for us to say that that was wrong. We don't, our resourcement doesn't have to be resourcement of every single thing that anybody in the past said all our retrieval is going to be critical retrieval. And I would say it's appropriate in this particular context, especially because in the 20th century, we see where this line of argument ultimately ends up. So if I could play the, uh, you know, just taking on the perspective of someone who, who's at least still, who, who questions these things. I mean, in a certain light, if you, if you look at world history and if you look at certain interpretations of world history, it, it appears that that the Jews play an outsized perspective, uh, especially when, when you consider their numbers in world history. And, 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 and often, in, in many instances, it's, it, it's negative. I mean, you know, people point to uh, the, the, the rot in Hollywood and they say, you know, this is, there's a lot of Jewish people who are involved in filmmaking, for instance. So the, the, you can align everything and, and see it in this particular way. So what is the, I mean, for, for, for those who, who view it skeptically, in that way, is that, I mean, what what is the alternative that's not just a pure egalitarian diatribe, you know, shut up, bigot, and, and moving on? I mean, so, so how, how should one view the problems that we see and then we know that there's some association with this people group? Uh, how, how should we look at that? So I think what people are describing in that case is that that the, the explanatory data for that is that Jewish people have historically just been incredibly successful across a variety of different fields, resulting from the fact that as a result of all the persecution that they faced as a discrete and insular minority, to use the, the legal jargon, they've had to develop 
in, uh, internal educational networks, they've had to develop a set of survival skills under those conditions that have allowed them to, to thrive in a lot of different cultural contexts. And so to the extent that we're talking about effective work habits, uh, you're definitely going to get a lot of Jewish people who are at the high levels of just about any industry in which you find them. So it's not just Hollywood. It, there's lots of Jewish intellectuals who've shaped the conservative movement, for instance. It's just, a ver I think that what we're describing here is just a, a, effectively the fact that Jewish people are successful and there's, there's a lot of envy that follows from that. And so I didn't write this in my, my piece, but I actually, I, I thought about it since then. I'd like to flip this back on the people who are really outraged about that and suggest that, you know, we, we can actually learn a lot from this example of people who have been persecuted and found themselves a, a minority under lots of hostile civilizational conditions and who have managed to hand on traditions and an understanding of their faith uh, in a, a whole variety of different cultural contexts that have been very impressive, uh, including even the Holocaust. And they, they've made it out and they've they've managed to continue and develop and defend that tradition under those, those circumstances. So if, if we as Christians look to the wider world and see ourselves as under threat in Western condition, then we need to be learning from the, the Jewish example of how to how to survive and thrive under oppressive conditions rather than simply getting mad about the fact that some other groups have, have made this, made it out and been successful. So trying to combine what we've talked about at the beginning, the, the vitalist concept, you know, the pagan myth, uh, mythos, as well as, you know, having just discussed, uh, you know, Judaism and its effect uh, and the Jews' effect on history. So we see all that come together in the 1920s and 30s with the rise of fascism, especially in Germany. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I appreciated in your article, you do not deny that there is an internal logic to the Nazi perspective. So, mm -hmm. so people of, I don't know for sure if my generation was the one of the last that just would, would, would read that. And perhaps it's because there were still a lot of Holocaust survivors alive when I was in high school. I mean, I can remember going and, and hearing, hearing some speak in, in college, uh, who were, you know, on campus. And so you know, the, we see this, but now it's, you, you talk about the fact that there, there's a lot in, in, in the Nazi view that made sense. Well, well, people earlier may not, in the past, could not understand that there's any sense, but they say, just look at all these atrocities. But now, uh, for whatever reason, people have begun to go back and it's on a continuum between either just acknowledging the logic that's there all the way to we should really start, you know, not, not, not the, the persecution, but we should really, you know, they had some really good ideas. So, I mean, it, it appears the language that the rhetoric that you see, and you, know, you see some of it in Italy and, and, and even to a lesser degree, but some of Oswald Mosley, the, 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 the British fascist leader that few talk about, you see this presentation of this ideal society, this, this vitalist society. So what, I mean, Christians, naturally, we see things breaking apart. We look back and we say, well, we wish it was like this. And then these people are saying, yeah, we, we, we've got your answer right here. So 
what should prevent Christians from adopting that perspective? I mean, if we say, well, we believe that we can't go, all right, so eugenics is the line, so we won't go past there, but we can go up to that point because there's no explicit sin. I mean, what's to stop that type of thing? My, my response to that is that as a Christian, you are not given the privilege of standing outside of history or without a history. And most of the societies that we've previously talked about, the societies of the, where the theology is a theology of eminence or alternative pagan conceptions of enchantment, those, those societies had what Mircea Eliade, he's a scholar of religion at the University of Chicago, what he has described as a, a cyclical view of time and history. So basically, everything that has, is happening in society and the hierarchies and the order in which we find ourselves, that will continue just about indefinitely. That will continue throughout various time and throughout change and process. And everything that, that occurs will ultimately repeat. And uh, this, the, the Hindu tradition has uh, a philosophy of this, the progression through four ages, culminating in the, the Kali Yuga. People like to meme about this online. And that, that then things will ultimately be reborn and repeat themselves indefinitely. And I think there, there's a temptation for conservatives. And I, I say this because I am a conservative, to, to want things never to change. And to, to once you've established like a, an equilibrium or a way of life that is valuable to you and that is full of the things that you love and you want to pass on to your kids and your grandkids, you want that to continue indefinitely. But what happens with Christianity in particular um, is that we have human history being ordered from creation to eschaton. And that the age that we live in now is the age of the church, which is hurtling towards an end in time. That is a modern conception of history that we have that Christianity brings and the Christianity dis displaces out of the, the cyclical view that we've previously, previously mentioned. So history as such is emerges with the resurrection of Christ and the eschaton in a way that ultimately has to reconfigure how we see uh, everything else and how we, how we understand what it means to be a conservative. And so if your goal is just for everything to, to continue indefinitely and you're willing to do just about anything to, to preserve that uh, up to eugenics uh, and not including that, what you're, what you're doing is saying that there is no, we do not actually stand within the age of the church with through which Christians work out problems and resolve doctrinal differences and think through the implications of Christianity this side of eternity. We're saying that the history in which we live in doesn't in fact exist. And I don't think that's something that we as Christians have the privilege of entertaining, that our, our ability to understand uh, ourselves and our place in the world has to be ordered by the fact that we're we're heading towards union with Christ and that we, we stand in a process of expectancies where the, the kingdom is here already, but also not yet. That that undoes the kind of conservatism that wants history never to exist, that wants to avoid any sort of development or reflection or way of stabilizing a social order by whatever means necessary. We can't get that kind of stability here. We, we shouldn't expect that here. We have to expect that we will be, we're, we're pilgrims not just because we're, we're here below, but we're pilgrims because we stand in a historical process. And that's okay. That, that, is, that is what it means to, to live in history as Christians and to, to live with our eyes fixed to a, a reference point that's beyond the, the cycle of becoming. So, with with that in mind, that takes us then, and, and, and we're going to we'll need to stop really soon, but one of pro perhaps my favorite article that you've written, uh, that's hard to say because you've written quite a few that I, I, I like, but 
it's on Oswald Spengler. The German writer wrote The Decline of the West. And, and, and he speaks directly to what you were just talking about. He, he speaks to the question of what do we do with history? Because, you know, his view of cultures, how they come, how they grow, and how they become a civilization and then decline, that has a lot to say. And, and you actually take a more positive view of Spengler that, again, I've had, I've not, but I've not read many people outside of you who do, Christians especially, who have a positive view of him. So, so just without getting into too much detail, talk about him and, and what he has to say about the West and, and, and Christianity's role potentially in the West as it, as it seems to come to its twilight. Yeah, so Spengler's argument was that all civilizations or all, all cultures before they become civilizations have a, a, a life cycle. They, they, they emerge with a fundamental religious intuition or acknowledgement of, as, as I, what I would say as a Christian, is acknowledgement of the reality of the, the one God who subsists before all worlds. And they, they understand that in a particular way. And that, that religious experience or way of understanding God in, in the terms of natural theology, that works itself out through the civilization's art, through its political forms, through its architecture, through its uh, sense of expansion, through its mathematics. He does the Spengler goes through this with about six or seven different civil cultures as they emerge into becoming developed civilizations. But over time, what happens within those civilizations is that that limited under conception or perception of God and God's relation to the world that the, the deficiencies in that begin to show up. And I'm, I'm to, be, to be clear for the Spang, any Spangler scholars who are listening to this, I'm refracting him through a Christian lens. But uh, essentially, as those, the any particular civilization or culture uh, is, is running on a clock, is running down, headed towards inevitable decline, and maybe not total destruction, but at least a subsumption as new world pictures emerge and as new intuitions emerge that shape and drive civilizational order. And I think the if you read Spengler as, as a classical theist or a, as a Christian in particular, what you're going to see in there is the idea that Spengler does not deny the idea that history is ultimately operate, working within uh, an overarching transcend, transcendent frame apart from which we couldn't even talk about epochs of history at all. That is the, the condition of the possibility of the, the cycles of history that he describes. And so if Christianity is true and that that entire historical continuum is in fact created and sustained by the providential work of God, then human affairs and the, the perspective of Christians, as no matter what civilization they find themselves in, has to be recognizing the fact that their cultural forms and their, their political configurations might in fact be transitory. That we've, we've seen cultures and civilizations emerge and rise and fall as history has progressed. But that does not falsify the idea that there is a sovereign God who transcends all of this and who may be apprehended and acknowledged across different cultural contexts and across different world pictures that emerge throughout the course of time. And I find this very comforting because even though I, I do believe that it's important to fight hard to preserve that which is good, and I think we have an obligation to, to love and serve our neighbor by doing just that in the political realm and elsewhere, that's important. This That fight is not an existential fight in the sense of it being an existential fight for Christianity in the world. 
the the Christian message is something that transcends civilizations and cultures. We see Christian cultures in in Russia, in Ethiopia, around the world, acknowledging the one God that we worship here in the West. And so that's not saying that the the fight day-to-day bit in America isn't important. It absolutely is. But it is a relative fight, relative to acknowledging that you know, there is a there's a moral order under which we stand that is reflects a transcendent creator to whom we're ultimately oriented, and that nothing that happens in history can change that. That's and uh, we're ultimately promised that at the end of time, God will be all in all, and all of this, uh, all tears will be wiped away. And I think that really has to norm our political engagement and the the ways in which we talk about our place in civilization. It's really hard for those of us who love what we have received mm-hmm. through history for those who, you know, when we study history, when, when we, when we think about the things that we appreciate, it's hard to say that our Western culture may very well dissipate the way that we know it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the North America will be here until the Lord moves otherwise. I mean, the continent will remain, Uh but the way that, but, but, but even just the land itself, its geographical features will not outlast the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, so I'll say your article made me who loves tradition and the West probably as much as any, Protestant is allowed to. Um, it actually, for the first time, let sort of gave me permission to say, if this goes, that's okay, because mm-hmm. the faith once delivered to the saints, once for all delivered to the saints will not go exactly the church church, there will always be the word of god the church there will always be pastors or priests deacons there will always be the saints and so so civilization i mean civilizations will die Mm And that doesn't mean that the kingdom of God declines. It just means that this particular, that the kingdom of God manifested in this particular way will not be the dominant one. But but at the same time, as we know with other civilizations, no, the remnants of that civilization don't all perish. The best is preserved. Right. And people can pick that up and learn from that, and I think absolutely should. And I think that that has to inform how we how we look at other cultures that aren't aren't extant anymore or aren't live in this sense. You can you can take the best of this and work to steward that. And uh, Cormac McCarthy, uh, in his book The Road, he's got a wonderful metaphor that I love, which is the idea that in it's about a, a father and his son traversing a desolate America in the wake of apocalypse. And the the metaphor that they use for describing that they're, they're carrying on humanity and decency is carrying the fire. And even in the midst of 
horrific conditions, even in the midst of total destruction, what they're preserving is an inheritance that human beings are, are more than beasts. And I think it's a helpful way to think about Christians here below as the as the world changes and progresses, and that the, our our goal is not to uh, do everything that we possibly can to to shore up the shore up the imperium, and uh, but that's also not a counsel to be to be just be managers of decline as if uh, we could just stand back and let, right. let the fire go out. There's a there's a way to carry the fire through these conditions that doesn't doesn't absolutize either aspect of that, and I think that's that's the course that Christians need to be to be reflecting on. Right, we 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 don't bow to the cultural winds. We stand, knowing you know, doing what what Tolkien called we 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 fight the long defeat, which is actually, as Chesterton says in the Everlasting Man, is not a defeat because Christianity died multiple times and rose again because we know we serve the God who knows the way out of the grave. Right, definitely. So. John, thank you very much. I, I appreciate you taking time with us again. John Arrett, he is he's written for multiple online uh, and and print magazines, and so you can get a lot from his writing. So thanks, John, for taking time with us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. The Good Life Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy one of our other podcasts, Got a Minute, featuring Larson Hicks and Rich Lusk. Theology, philosophy, economics, politics, and more for normal people.